Hello, Lion Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lion Cook Thoughts Podcast. And in this interview, I interview uh, my friend Sam Backrack, who is a sommelier. Uh, he, him and I went to school together, and he has a very in-depth knowledge of wine. Uh, he's uh, very young in terms of sommeliers and, I guess, how old they are. Um, but he's very knowledgeable for his age, and he just has so much knowledge on wine in general, and he has such a passion for it. And... You know, I recently went out to dinner with him and just seeing him speak to the sommelier that was able to uh, work with us to get us the best wines we could possibly get at the place uh, within our price range. It was truly magical to see him go into this world, almost speaking another language entirely. And I'm just very excited to have had the opportunity to interview him. We talk all things wine on this podcast. Um, It's not too in-depth because I wanted to be general for cooks because I know a lot of cooks don't have as much of a wine knowledge as maybe we all should have, me included. And so I really just asked him the questions based on what I wanted to know in terms of wine. So I'm really excited for you all to hear this. Thank you, Sam, so much for coming on. And here we go. All right, Sam, welcome to the Line Cook Thoughts podcast. Very excited to have you on. If you just want to go ahead and introduce yourself and, you know, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Uh, my name is uh, Sam Backrack. Uh, I'm a sommelier in New York City, um, and uh, I'm a former colleague of Ray's at the Culinary Institute of America. Awesome. And where are you originally from? Uh, Marstown, New Jersey. Marstown, New Jersey. And is it Taylorham or Pork Roll? It's Taylorham. Taylor I can't remember if Chef K worked. Um, I can't remember his answer, but I know he was very opinionated about it. It's Taylor. It's Taylorham in, in North Northern Jersey. It's Taylorham. And in southern, it's southern New Jersey, it's whatever. What is what's the best application of pork roll? Do you think? The, or you mean Taylor ham? Or Taylor ham? My my uh, on a, on a, on a bagel with cheese, ketchup, salt, and pepper, and an okay. egg, and an egg. Nice, yeah. I can see. Like for me, I just don't have a connection with Taylor ham because all I've ever known is pork rolls. So. But yeah, cool. Well, like I said, thank you for coming on. I'm excited to talk everything wine with you today. Um, I just started the interviews with getting to know a little bit about the person before we get into like the main topic. So if you just want to tell me what like food was like for you growing up, kind of your background, like your like your origin story, like what kind of got you to where you are now. Yeah, food for me growing up was always really important to my family. My grandfather cooked, my mom cooked, my aunts cooked, my grandmother cooked. Um, we always want uh, you know prioritize going out to to nice restaurants, you know, to really have an experience. So, so food was always a central role growing up in my house. And for holidays, you know, the whole family gets together. It's always played an important important role in my life. Okay. Yeah, holiday meals for me were, like, really big. Um, mm-hmm. I just know, like, my favorite foods would come out of holidays, like pierogies and lasagna and stuff. Do you have any favorite foods that would come out from your holiday meals? Well, you know, uh, latkes and, and things like that. You know, I'm, I'm Jewish, so we definitely have those staples, chicken soup with matzo balls, kugel, brisket, all those, you know, classic, classic Jewish holiday foods. Okay. My family does really, really well. Nice. And so do you think that led you into cooking or what kind of led you into wanting to get into the food industry? Um, that plays a part in cooking. Um, what led me into cooking professionally more was my dislike of sitting at a desk in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, really led me towards the kitchen. Uh, and of course, the love of food helped yeah. yeah 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 were you the type of kid that was like just counting the seconds on the clock to get out yeah. of class yeah, yeah i was same. every day i think people like us kind of gravitate toward cooking because it's so like irrational and just like 
Oh, he's got me. Yeah, you're up, you're standing on your feet all day. You're using your hands. You're constantly thinking and you're creating your own path to achieve the final goal. Um, you know, you listen to your chef, of course, but there's, it's a lot more personable. I, I feel like school, I was always just didn't understand why I had to sit. I mean, I do understand, but, you know, like, why do I have to sit here? This is ridiculous. Yeah. Were there any topics you gravitated towards? Uh, I was always better. I was always better in history class on uh, I was always better in English or literature, you know, literature and things like that. Yeah. Writing. Nice. Yeah. I was... Science I have an interest in, but math is not a thing for me. Yeah, no, definitely. Math wasn't good for me. I also gravitated toward English and literature. That was the only honors class I did was English. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I thought English was cool because of the creativity and I love writing and reading and everything in between. So. You know, English for me was definitely a cool class. Um, it always blew my mind. This is something I think about a lot that we never got. I never got taught cooking in school until my vocational school. Did you have the same experience? Yeah, so I went for high school. I went to vocational school. Okay. Um, and my, you know, my history and, and my interest in history and in reading definitely plays a part in my, you know, love of wine and knowledge, food knowledge and, and things like that. You know, I like telling a story. Yeah. Which is, you know, where my passion lies. I think vocational school is so important. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I would. I would agree. I think that. I think that more kids should go. To, I was very lucky to go to a very a very good vocational school, Marsh County School of Technology. Mm -hmm. I was really lucky to go there. Um, it's, a, it's a really progressive, really great, you know, good environment to learn in. And uh, I think more kids should go to technical school. I, I think it should be something that is a is a option that's advertised to kids going into high school all over the place because trades and crafts are great. Yeah. And worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, I always kind of got a bad rap. Um, sometimes where it was like where the kids or students will go that weren't like the smartest. Um, but I think that's starting to change when you look at what like that more people want to get into these type of trades now that they're like becoming more popular, like cooking and even stuff like welding, you know, people like are really getting interested in. So I don't know, I'm interested to see where that goes in the next couple of years in terms of high school uh, teaching and whatnot. Yeah, it's a big it's a big reason why I went to the culinary um, after high school, because you know, I, I really cement, it gave me a foundation for food and wine for for wanting to continue and and seeing a path that I could take this in a professional manner. Okay, and what? Uh, so, how did you start to get into cooking in the food? Well, so uh, you know, in terms, I, well, so I know like, you had your family meals and stuff, but like, when did you actually like? What, like, was vocational school? Well, my friend, my learning? friend, my, I have a very close friend of mine who went to the same school for uh, information technology, and he knew that I love to cook, and he himself likes and likes to cook as well um but he knew i love to cook and he told me that they offer a program for culinary arts mm -hmm. and so when he told me that i realized you know i toured a couple uh high schools you know my couple public schools a couple private schools and, and then when my friend told me that this is a technical school that he's going to also has a culinary arts program i realized like this is you know that was like a light bulb light bulb moment and just realized like i can really take this could be a path for me this could be something i could do okay nice um and I know we talked before about your grandfather being a big inspiration for you, into especially wine. What was it like, you know, through the lens of growing up, like to be able to share experiences with him? Like, what was his wine repertoire like? What did he impact with you, food wise? Like, how did that all play out for you? So my, my grandfather has a has a cellar uh, in his house, a personal cellar, stocked with Bordeaux and white Burgundy and Napa Cab and California Chardonnay, primarily some Spanish wine, some Italian wine some champagne, uh, sauternes as well. And so when I was growing up, I didn't really understand uh, what all that was until uh, 
sophomore, junior year of high school, um, when I started kind of learning about beer and wine and, you know, I started home brewing as well. And so, you know, I, I began to understand kind of what it all meant and what it meant to food. Mm-hmm. And my, my grandfather took me to Laverna Den when I was, a, when I was a child, uh, when I was not a child, when I was, you know, kid and 12 years old. Um, and that was a really interesting experience because yeah, they, they did serve me tasting portions of wine. They really did. And, um, that was the first time I had really high end food like that, fine dining and also wine and to put it all together. Okay. Um, it was like, uh, it was different. So it was very interesting to me. That's cool. I feel like you, you've had a better understanding of the food industry because of that. I mean, for me, I thought Olive Garden was like fine dining until I got to the CIA. Um, and then, like, after that, like, I was still learning that Thomas Keller wasn't what not. So I think it's really cool that your grandfather kind yeah. of exposed you I'm, to that. I'm very fortunate to have uh, to have had my, my grandfather be so passionate about dining and food. Why do you think he was so passionate? Did he ever relate that to you? Or? I, I, th- I think it has to do with uh, him him growing up uh, in a more uh, religious Jewish family and then you know, finding branching off and finding a new, finding a new world and, mm-hmm. you know, just things that were a little more modern, a little more progressive. Uh, you know, he was a dentist, so he was definitely in the community that of people who knew about things like fine dining and, and fine wine. And how did he get into like creating a cellar and collecting wine? Uh, his, his best friend, Alvin Turner, mm-hmm. uh, was uh, also a dentist uh, and he had a passion for wine and my grandfather took after that. Okay. And so like, how important is a cellar for like someone who collects wine? I mean, it's important because it's where you put, you know, your package, which holds all, you know, your prized possessions, your favorite bottles of wine. And it's, you know, a place, you know, it's a, it's a place where you can, you know, exercise your hobby. And, you know, if you're buying thousand, if very expensive bottles of wine, you need a, a secure place to put them. So cellars, mm. personal cellar is important if you're really interested. And of course there's wine fridges and things like that as well. It was his like fancy or no, just just brick wall, just a cellar in the basement, brick walls, wooden shelves, nothing fancy. So the temperature kind of stays the same throughout the year. Yes. Okay, that's cool. And how like how large is a cellar like for him? Like a couple, like, not a very large cellar. You could probably put like four. It was I don't think I've ever seen it at capacity, but you could probably fit like four hundred fifty bottles in there. Four hundred fifty. Well, that's cool. And why cases? Few cases. Really. And why did he? Um, why did he collect like you know like Bordeaux and the Napa cabs? Like why that was just this... what was in fashion at the time when he learned about when he started learning about wine. It's yeah, just, that was just fashionable at the moment. Okay. Big, big, big extracted Napa cab, big, you know, weighty Bordeaux and Oaky California Chardonnay. That's just what was kind of in vogue at the time he started collecting, and in the nineties and early two thousands. So that's what that's what he drank. And when you say like weighty. Like what? What do you mean by like just, just dense, chewy, big napa? You know, with a lot of oak on it, just mm-hmm. big, big cabernet. Okay. Yeah. And do you think like kind your dad likes? Okay. <laughs> and do you think um? What do you think? Like if he went out to order something, or when you, you were younger, I don't know if you ever noticed. Like, would he try new wines, or did he kind of stay in that wheelhouse of like the wine? No, he stayed, he was he was rather opinionated. Really? Uh, when he was younger, uh, or yeah, so. No, he never. I don't. He doesn't like Burgundy at all, so he never really ventured. He had his producers from Napa and the Bordeaux he liked. He likes Chateau Lynchbage, and and that's that. Okay, and I mean, do you think you'll ever? Are you opinionated right now? Are you open to new? No, I'm not. I'm. I'm not. I mean, I have. I am a very opinionated person, but when as in terms of like coming to wine, like no, I think all wine is great. 
if yeah. everyone's different, no one's better or worse unless it's poorly made. Okay. And do you think you'll ever get to that point where you're like, I like this more? Like, no, 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 no. never. Because I'm constantly looking for something different, um, something new, something exciting. So my taste cool. is my taste is changing by the my taste changes by the week. Really? You know, one week I could be really into. Well, usually the next week I could be really into, you know, new California wines, and I guess those kind of fall into the same category a little bit. But no, my my taste is always changing. What are you into right now? What am I into right now? Um, I've been drinking a lot of German recently, mm-hmm. lately. Um, I think as most Psalms will answer the same thing. They'll be like, I'm drinking a lot of German Riesling or I'm drinking a lot of Beaujolais. And and that definitely holds true. Um, in terms of the wines, I really enjoy selling to guests right now. I really enjoy selling old vintage Napa, Napa Valley Cabernet mm-hmm. from the 80s, from the 90s. From high-end, kind of more classical, traditional producers like Corazon or Dunn or okay. producers like producers in that same vein, Delval, Mayakamis. Um, I think it really surprises people, especially when they're European or they don't like Napa Cab. Uh, I, I like to push it on someone and be like, like, you know, tell them like, this is not going to be what you think it is, and you should really, I, I insist you try and and I always have great success because those wines are really fantastic when they're made correctly. They can age for a long time. Okay. And um, so I took, last time we talked, I took your advice and I went and got a German Riesling and I ended up getting like a really good bottle. It was vintage 2009. I'm not sure exactly the name, maybe. Kartauser. You drank Kartauserhof. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Kartauserhof is a very old domain um, from the Ruver region of the Mosel River Valley in Germany. Okay. Uh, They have their, they're famous for their monopole that they make Kartauserhofberg. Um, and it's just a really energetic Riesling. They produce wine. They they have uh, Auschleses as well. Um, most of their wine and beer not and TBAs and things like that. But uh, most of their wines are made dry, okay. and they're they're very mineral driven. Lem- like really vibrant lemon and lime, and uh, they have this always have this nice kind of round honey character. Just, yeah, just a little, just to balance it out a little bit. But they're very aggressive. They're very powerful and. And they're just they age for a very very long time, and they're just fabulous wines. Yeah, I mean, when I had, I opened it up, it was darker than most Rieslings I've ever I've had. Yeah, well, two thousand nine was a was a richer richer vintage, so those wines are really gonna have that that great golden Riesling hue to them. Yeah, it was a. I mean, I got two bottles mm-hmm. of it. Uh, the first bottle was a little more golden than the yeah. second. I don't know if that's normal to have this coloration. There, there's bottle there's bottle variation. Um, you know, there's yeah. bottle variations of. of but yeah. the way like it tastes like it smelled and tastes like honey and mm-hmm. uh, like melons to me and like you said citrus fruits and yeah. I was like and it was twenty four bucks and I was like this it's is a great Kartauserhof is a, is a fantastic value. So how does value. how does wine like because that for that was the best wine I ever drank. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I'm just getting into wines, but for me, in my opinion, if I had to choose one glass I've ever drank, that would be it again. Yeah, I would I would say that I've had some I've had very old Kartauserhof, 1990 Auschleser. I've had 1989 Ashleza as well, um, 2011 and uh, 2012 Spätlese I've had I've had their whole lot of lot of wines. I've had 1971 Cabernet from them that was singing. I mean, those wines are really in the top tier of great, and they're not expensive because nobody people kind of turn their unless you're a Sommer really into wine. People don't drink German Riesling. Why? Because uh, Americans have this perception that it's a sweet wine of low quality. And low class, uh, they were the Germans in the '90s were producing 
uh, a lot of wine called like leapfrau milk, milk and stuff like that, which is um, just really sweet wine with um, Mueller Durgau and uh, uh, Madeleine uh, Royale or something like that. Just some, some low quality hybrid grapes that just very, very sweet, very, very flat, very, very cheap. And so just kind of put this impression in people's minds that German Riesling is not a wine worth drinking, but it's one of the great wines of the world. Yeah, I mean, I agree from what I tasted. So my my next question is: So how can you have a wine so great? I mean, I looked it up, and like some bottles go for seventy from that vintage, hmm? sixty or seventy. Like some bottles are like sixty or seventy in other spots online. But like, how do you have a wine so good get marked down so much? Um, I just has to do with sourcing. You know, okay. where they got the bottle of wine from? I I really couldn't answer why that specific bottle is twenty five dollars. I yeah, you have to go to the shop. Is it would it be because it was stored for? Like, would there have to be something wrong with it, or maybe it was just like a good deal someone got? No, it's well, it's retail, so they're not in New York City. Retail stores are not uh, really buying from private clients. Okay. Uh, I, I don't believe that retail is allowed to do consignment like restaurants in New York City are. So they probably bought it from a distributor who had had it for a very long time, or maybe they bought it directly from the winery. Okay, and uh, yeah, I mean that's cool to talk about. Um, so let's get into kind of your getting into cooking more. So when did you decide to go to the CIA like officially and what was it like when you first got there? I, I always months? knew when I when, once, especially once I went to the vocational school, I, I pretty much knew that I had to go to college. You know, my family's a big proponent of education and I knew I had to go to college. And so if I was going to go to college, I was going to do something that I enjoyed doing. And so CIA was the only logical choice. And I went to visit Johnson and Wales and I just knew like, that's not yeah not where I should be <laughs> yeah I have some friends at Johnson and Wales and I'm sure they're having a great time but yeah not, not for me I hate their program school but mm-hmm. yeah obviously we're CIA people um and what did you wait what were your thoughts after your first year like did you love it did you hate it I, I loved mean, it I loved it yeah I loved it from the very first day yeah I mean like and like any college especially CIA is a very interesting and uh you know different environment to learn in and there's it's very stressful and it can be challenging at times especially when you have your AM schedule and you're waking up at four thirty, five o'clock in the morning for, you know, uh, mm-hmm. four or five months on end. Yeah. Uh, it's tough, but I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade that any, I wouldn't trade a second for anything else in the world. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I loved going there. I mean, I remember leaving for externship and thinking how magical it was and how yeah. like every day was like the best day ever. Um, I loved it. And I kind of went through my whole CIA career thinking I was going to go to the Michelin route. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously you know, that switched up for me. But, like, for you, did you ever, like, have those plans? And no, no. I never thought I would ever work Michelin. Now I'm working Now I'm working to Michelin. <laughs> and and I'm in awe every day. I really never thought that I'd be the type to be in New York City. It was always a goal, kind of, to be in New York. Like, that was, like, like oh, if I could do that, that would be great. You know, be in New York City. I never really thought I'd be working Michelin ever. Yeah. Um, it just kind of happened. I had a friend, and I, you know, asked if there if they're hiring um and and luckily i was very fortunate to get the job and it was my first michelin restaurant and they just hired me and so it was good hmm. it's been great yeah like what, what part of school did you realize you wanted to get into wine um what part when i was in extern when i was on extern hmm. every time i was in the weeds having a bad day getting yelled at um i was just like i should do something different of course it still needs to be relevant to food for me so i was like let me i should go screw this i want to go work in a brewery screw this i should just go work in a vineyard and do nothing you know not not be in a kitchen yeah so that that really was the beginning 
of me wanting to leave the kitchen. Mm-hmm. I still love cooking and you know, maybe I'll go back to being in a kitchen, but that was, that was definitely a moment where like, I, maybe there's another path for me. Maybe there's something else I can do and still be involved in food and food and beverage and whatnot and restaurants. So, so that was the beginning. And then I went to school and started drinking more wine and really taking wine seriously Did the wines class. And once I started, you know, I was really excelling in the wines class, really, really excelling and doing very well. And I don't typically do well in academic classes, but I was doing well in that one. And I, I realized it's because I had a passion for wine. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, I knew that I was going to be a sommelier or I was going to be working for a distributor or at a winery or something. I knew it was going to be wine from that yeah. point on. And, and everything I've done since then has been wine focused. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the CIA's class is great with wine. Uh, the big thing for me is once I finished it, I mean, I got an A minus in the class, but like literally three weeks later, I was like, checked out of it how did you kind of maintain your like ability to retain all that um practical use like same thing like cooking you know if you don't cook for a while you lose your knife skills you lose you lose the understanding of how to saute something you lose the understanding the natural understanding of when something is ready to come out of the oven same thing with wine if you're not talking about it with guests or reading about it every day or tasting all the time then then just like cooking you lose that skill it's a it's a perishable skill it doesn't it doesn't stay it's not like riding a bike it doesn't mm-hmm. stay with you no matter what so just yeah that, that's hard to lose it when i went through the restaurants at at cia i always made sure to be talking about wine with guests when i went to bocuse you know uh, my professor brandon schmidt uh, offered a couple of kids a sommelier position um because he knew that there was an interest in wine in the class and and i made sure that he knew that I wanted to have the position and, 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 and then he gave me the position. Mm-hmm. So I was very grateful for. And, and so I was doing that and I really realized that this is something I can do professionally and it's how I retained that information from wines class. And so, yeah. And then I graduated, worked wine retail, went to the international culinary center for their sommelier uh, classes that was like a three month program, which was really fantastic with the court of master sommeliers and studied for my certified exam and, and uh, went to work at a winery after that in Oregon. So it just something you have to really just keep going, keep going with otherwise. Nice. And so like, I mean, after school, what what was your next job? Well, so I worked in the Upper West Side doing wine retail uh, for for a great company uh, with an auction department. So I got to uh, be around really high end fine wines, you know, first growth Bordeaux, Grand Cru Burgundies, old, you know, German Rieslings and, and beautiful Alsatian wines and, and high-end Napa Cab. And so I, I really was put myself in a position where I could be around the great wines of the world mm-hmm. uh, working there. And that took me to another level. Uh, and of course, at the same time, I was, I was going to, as I said before, the ICC and take classes there. What's it like working in wine retail? Like, are you, do you ever suggest wines to people or is it more to say, no, what they're coming in for and that's it? Well, I mean, it's sales, mm-hmm. you know, so so there's different ways to approach that, I guess. But um, in terms of where I worked, it was the Upper West Side. So you can kind of know your clientele. You have people who are coming in for a bottle of wine on a Tuesday night, on a Wednesday night. They're not going to spend more than 40 bucks on a bo- $45 on a bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. You also have a little more affluent people on the Upper West Side. You know, you get people coming in looking for a bottle of wine for the weekend to, you know, take to dinner with friends and Sometimes they'll spend $550, $600 on a single bottle of wine. So, you know, that store really ran the gamut between people who want to have wine on a budget and people who just 
right. have a have a black card and can spend whatever they want to spend. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy to think about. Mm-hmm. I, my only my always my worry when going into wine stores is that because like I guess I don't know a lot about wine. And mm-hmm. if I ask someone, they're going to just sell me something that they're trying to get rid of. Do you find no? That, that never that doesn't that. Of course, that happens. You mm-hmm. know, but you also have to understand that that that. Uh, sales associates, they have a reputation to uphold. The store has a reputation to uphold, and store's not going to be around too long if the sales reps are just pushing wine that they need to get rid of. No, the sales reps are constantly being tasted on different wines and, you know, educated, and and because of that, they're, they're if you tell them, you know, exactly what you want, they're going to really find you something that fits the bill because they want repeat business, you know. Okay. It doesn't matter if, if one customer comes in and spends $1,000 on wine, but they never come back. It's, it's worthless. You want customer to you want to build a relationship with the customer. You want them to come back over and over. Fifty dollars this week, sixty dollars the next week, twenty dollars the week after that, and mm-hmm. before you know it, three months have gone by and they spend two and a half grand. Okay, you know it's better than one guy coming in spending a grand. Okay, that's I never thought about it like that. So thanks for kind of clearing that up. So why I want to start getting into like why wine fascinates you so much. Like what, like for me, like cooking is always fascinating me because you can manipulate ingredients into these like beautiful works of art, or they can just be some humble dishes that taste great and bring you back to a childhood memory. Like why does wine like fascinate you and get you excited and get like your inner drive going? Yeah. There's lots of reasons why wine is fascinating. Um, I love the complexity of wine. It's, it's an intellectual pursuit where you can think, you know, learn about the regions it came from and what's special about where it came from and vintages and producers. And there's that, you know, academic uh, approach to wine that I really, really enjoy. Mm. Obviously, it tastes great and it gets you drunk. That's fun. <laughs> it's great with food and it helps to make a meal and memories because of that, which is a very valuable, the very val- a very valuable thing about wine is that it you know, creates memories and that's why people gravitate it, gravitate towards it at dinner time. Yeah. And I also love wine because I love hospitality and wine is a great way to make people happy. Okay. And I love serving wine to people because it, it you can see their eyes light up when, when you get the right bottle from them, when they learn something new or taste something different or just have a different experience with wine, something they didn't think was possible in, in the world of wine. It's, it's it's really it's really just a nice thing to be able to do for someone. Okay. People, people really enjoy it. Is it hard to be in, so passionate about something that so many people don't really truly understand? Like the complexities of wine and why wine that, like tastes the way it does and what it does. I mean, so sometimes, uh, to, honestly, of course, it gets a little annoying when a guest just does. You know, it's like you're trying to, you know, they're just trying to fight you a little bit. You mm-hmm. know, when it comes to like, like I don't, why do, why does this? Not that I don't care, but they're actively being like, why does this matter? But that's very rare. That doesn't happen a lot. Uh, I think it's exciting that a lot of people don't know about wine because it gives you a chance to tell people about it and to tell us. It gives you a chance to tell a story and to. Ex- turn someone's opinion around and and there's nothing people like more i i believe there's nothing people like more than being told being being proven wrong mm-hmm. you know they, if they come in with a bad attitude like coming not a bad attitude but come in like like oh wine is this for me i don't really care it's just something to drink it gets me drunk and then you can change their opinion and show them that it's a, a you know beautiful a beautiful product with a lot of history behind it and a lot of craftsmanship behind it and then they realize that yeah and they change their minds about it that i think that i love doing that for people and i think people like experiencing that i think people like experience experiencing discovering something new right you have a cool position where you're able to educate people and not, like i feel like wine comes with like history lessons or at least 
you get to appreciate where like a wine comes from, what the year was like when the wine was produced. Like I feel like there's just so much lore behind a really good bottle of wine is, that I think I, I I feel like I would enjoy if I was like ever some AA just telling the stories of the people who made the wine. Like, is that an important part for you? Yeah, I mean that's one of the best ways to sell wine. Um, guest needs something to grasp. Um, they need something that they can connect to. It needs to be more than just grape juice in a bottle with mm -hmm. a label. It needs to have, there needs to be some kind of connection uh, with it. And so telling that story uh, behind the wine and the producer and the vintage uh, to explain why the wine is the style of wine it is, is really important because it gives the guests something to connect to, uh, like I said, and it, it gives them something to understand the wine and, and to be confident and that's the wine that they should choose that evening, you know, that they're going to like it. Yeah. So. Okay. Awesome. And like when someone's like coming to a table and they're like asking about wine and whatnot, like grape wise, if they're just drinking wine, like what do you, like if they just want to start drinking wine right away without like having any food context, like what, what would you offer to be in the meal? Champagne. 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 Just because or Chablis. What is it? Or Chablis. Chablis. But um, really, truly, uh, champagne is the classic aperitif. It's what you drink before the meal. It gets your stomach going. It gets you a little drunk and makes you happy, and it's, it's delicious. And what about refreshing. Chablis? Chablis is the, not bubbly like champagne is, of course. Um, it's still wine, but same same idea. It's, it's has tons of acidity and beautiful freshness and just something to get your appetite going. Your There's lots of wines that work the same way as Chablis does, but... For, for an aperitif, something to have before dinner, you know, light, acidic white wines are great for that for that purpose. But champagne is the classic aperitif. I think whatever had should believe besides the boxed stuff. That you that's get. gross. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I've, that's, that's trash. I've that, never, that I don't even ever, ever actually tried that. I mean, I just know what it is. Mm -hmm. What's a good Chablis? Like, what, like, like wait, I guess, what is a good bottle of Chablis that you've had? I get, well, I mean, I, I've, I've been very fortunate to try lots of Chablis. Um, you know, I like rap. Some of my favorite producers are Rapineau and Dove, Dovisat and producers. Uh, and that vein who produced, you know, really elegant, complex Chablis. Yeah. Cool. I have to stop the recording real quick and restart. So I want to start to get into um, wine pairings. And I want to start with, like, when you look, look to do wine pairings, do you match the wine with the food or the food with the wine? Depends on the situation. Mm -hmm. um, because my restaurant is a very uh, chef-driven restaurant, uh, I tend to uh, my uh, I my team and I um, not my team. You know, I have a boss, of course, yeah. sommelier. But um, when when we're when we're doing wine and food pairings, we we tend to match the wine with the food. You know, the chef uh, puts up the food, and we taste and talk about it, and we pick a wine from the cellar that we think is going to go best with the food that night. Okay. Um, but wine pairing goes every every which way. There are no there, there are no rules for wine pairing. But um, I most and mostly in my experience, I, I tend to match the 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 wine with the food. Um, not that I don't usually I don't like we don't like taste the wine and be like ah this. I mean, they're they're classics, you know, mm -hmm. Bordeaux and beef, or Burgundy and duck. I think Gruner Veltliner and white asparagus. Yeah, you know they're classic pairings, of course. But um, typically, you know, you don't drink a wine and then like think of a complete dish yeah for the wine so yeah so we're at, drink, least, at least i don't we're drinking the sauvignon blanc right now not the highest quality what would you want to eat with this 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 is simple this just needs goat cheese mm -hmm. the classic pair for sauvignon blanc um, okay 
you know, um, or oysters or, you know, shellfish, light, light, light snacks. Okay. He's like that soft, creamy cheeses. Nuts. Yeah. Cool. I was, uh, I mean, I always think it's interesting when you come out with a wine and then start pairing with food. I don't know if a lot of, if any restaurants do that, I'm sure some do or some think about it that way, but like, would you ever want a place where you pair, like you just put out a wine that you're really hyped about and have the chef revolve around you? Or do you think? No, uh, the way, the way, the way I think, um, I think that guests come to restaurants primarily to eat Mm -hmm. and the food should be, the food should be the main attraction. Obviously a great wine list is, is a big draw for rest for guests, especially for me. You know, when I go out to a restaurant, I want to make sure that great wines, you know, cause I want my, you know, I want to drink great wine all the time. Yeah. But, but yeah, food, the food is the most important uh, part and the food should be the priority. And are you into like the giant Bibles of wine or do you like the more like subtle? Wine I love, ones? I love the giant wine Bibles. Really? I, 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 you know, there, there's a, Obviously, there's a place for the short format list. It yeah. makes a lot of sense for a lot of restaurants, especially if they're a little more hip or they're not, you know, they're not fine dining. If they're just, you know, like casual, you know, yeah. you know small plates, things like that. You know, you want a short list that you don't want a big Bible. But when you're doing fine dining and you're going, you know, it's fun to sit down with a giant, giant book of wine and take an hour and look through it and have some, you know, an aperitif and, a, you know, some cheese or something like some kind of snack before the meal and some canapes and talk to the psalm and, and, you know, find a great bottle of wine. Do you, so obviously you work with one of those giant books. Do, do people actually order, like oh, since you've been at work, has, have all the bottles been touched that you see in the book? Like have half the bottles been touched? Like I always wonder like, uh, is there <laughs> any bottles that no one even thinks about? Yeah. There are bottles we don't sell. No. I mean, not because it's a conscious thing. It's just, you know, Guests come in, you know, they want to drink burgundy. You know, we're an Alsatian restaurant. Mm-hmm. So guests come in like, oh, you're Alsatian. Do you have a great – I want a great Alsatian white wine. Yeah. Or a great Alsatian Pinot Noir to go with my meal. Or, you know, guests come in and, you know, they have a deep, deep pockets and they want to drink burgundy and Bordeaux and, you know, the Rhone Valley. and They want to drink Napa Valley also. And so so that's that's the primary things. But sometimes, you know, you have guests that come in um, and that are maybe usually a little younger uh, typically and – and they just want something interesting and different, and they don't have the wallets to drink Grand Cru Burgundy. So we have lots and lots of wine that suits that as well, and I love selling those bottles. Um, mm-hmm. But they don't move as much, obviously, just because they're not as in demand for, for that type of restaurant. There are other restaurants that are completely the opposite, where you might sell be selling selling natural wine from the Loire Valley day after day all the time, and you know, in, in New Cal cheap, you know, New California, so. And you'll sell that every single day, and then you might sell a bottle of, you know, Bordeaux or even Premier Cru Burgundy, you know, mm-hmm. once a month, whatever. So something that you, you know, so it really depends on the restaurant. But uh, for us, we typically sell, you know, what are considered the classically great wines in the world. And do you think it's dangerous to have too much of a wine list with too much expensive wines because you're not going to be able to get rid of it, or like, what's the mindset behind that? Well, it's all, it's like anything, it's a balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it depends, it depends where you are. We have lots and lots of expensive wine on our list and most of it moves. Some of it doesn't, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot, you know, you list a wine list is like advertising and you want to build a list that guests can read and, and be like, wow, they have that. Even if they might not necessarily buy it, you know, it's an attraction for the guests, you know, to read something and be like, wow, this restaurant has this 
you know, 1979 Romney Saint Vivant from Domaine Romney Conti, like that bottle has never been sold in the history of Gabriel Croyther, yeah. but we have it on the list. And it's not, it, and if it is sold, I, I doubt it's going to be sold in the near future. I mean, it could be sold tomorrow, but tonight, but who knows? Um, yeah. But wines like that are on the list because they look great on the list. They provide a talking point, a point of interest, and it's prestigious to have them. Okay. So wines don't necessarily have to move. Um, you know, everyone understands that wine is an investment that is not going to provide a fast return. Okay. And so like, finally to wrap up wine pairings, what makes like a truly great wine pairing in your opinion? A uh, truly great wine pairing is all, all about harmony. You want the wine to elevate the food and then you want the food to elevate the wine. Um, you, I think Grunewald Liner and White Asparagus is, is a really great um, example of that where you have the, the bitter, uh, fresh, crispy white asparagus. You have round know kind of spicy a little bit earthy uh and herbaceous Gruner Veltliner mm. and, and when they come together the bitterness really helps to kind of just frame the fruit on the Gruner and yeah. the acidity of the Gruner really helps to amplify the texture of the white asparagus and and to me that that is a perfect pairing where the you know the the flavors of the food help to you know mold together with the wine and the texture of the wine helps the texture of the food. Okay. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so next up, we went to a chef's club together, me, you, Connor, Jerry. Uh, those are some of our friends with the people listening. And basically, we all put in 40 bucks for wine, and we had a tremendous wine pairing. What do you think for, like, someone who's 20 years old and they're like, maybe eating out in, like, a city like New York City, what do you think is a good – Amount for like one person to spend. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. Excuse me. Maybe not if they're twenty, but if they're if they're twenty one or twenty three or whatever, and, and they want to go out to spend wine, it, it really depends on your budget. And there's great wine for every budget. Yeah. Um. I felt very. I I feel like it's a great range where if you're going out with four or five people, you each contribute forty forty to sixty dollars just for the beverage, and and you're gonna have you're gonna be able to for that for that price, you know. 160 to 250 dollars total you're going to be able to drink fantastic wines and really get an experience and so getting into like producers and um i guess just people you look up to that are producing really good wine like who are some producers that are you're like wow that's like really cool um good producers that i'm like wow that's really cool um well jewel uh the beaujolais there's there's a jules desernay makes a really interesting style of Beaujolais that, that uh, typically ages really, really nicely. I, I've had his wines 2006, 7, 8, uh, 2011, uh, 2010 also, and I've had his current releases, his current releases as well, and they're just graceful, great age gracefully, and they kind of show that, that Beaujolais Gamay has a characteristic that really can lend itself to aging, uh, and that it's really a noble grape variety. Is Beaujolais something that's not looked upon as noble, or? Uh, typically, you know, Beaujolais in a lot of people's minds is something to be drunk young. It's something that's uncomplicated. It's a bistro wine. Um, it's not going to ever reach the same heights as Pinot Noir. And, and to some extent, it won't. It's it's not uh, as noble as Pinot Noir, but it's, it's an, a fantastic grape that can produce, you know, amazing, amazing wines and that I love a lot. Okay. Yeah. What are the notes for like Beaujolais? Like, what is it known for? So it depends on the producer and the style. Uh, if, if it's meant for immediate consumption and 
carbonic maceration, you can expect really, you know, bubble gum and banana. That's a characteristic of of, of car- carbonic maceration. Mm-hmm. Um, and big, bright cherry flavor and just like sangria um, flavor, you know, kind of sangria kind of vibe to it and the, um, decent acidity sometimes. And it's very, very light and something you drink cold, um, okay. no tannin, you know. Just a red fruited white wine, if you will. Um, then you can get really serious Beaujolais. That's also carbonic maceration, like the wine we drink mm-hmm. um, at the Chef's Club, Marcel Lapierre from 2014. And that's a wine that really shows its terroir. It has beautiful spice characteristics, and ours had a, you know pretty much four years of age on it, and so it's just showing a little bit of earth to it, and a little secondary characteristics, and rather complex. Um, a little herbaceous because it's a cooler vintage, 2014. Actually, in Beaujolais, in Burgundy, it's cooler, but in Beaujolais, actually, 2014 is considered a great vintage. Not not as cold and a little a little more sunny. I I like to believe. And for those so, yeah. who, for the cooks that are listening that may not know what it is, or anyone in general that's listening that doesn't know, what is carbonic maceration? Uh, carbonic maceration is a technique to produce uh, wines that typically are meant to be drunk in their youth. Typically mm-hmm. meant to be drunk in their youth. Um. It's an enzymatic reaction that produces alcohol. You put grapes in a closed container and you flood it with carbon dioxide, and that sets off um, an alcoholic uh, alcohol production uh, in the grapes, and it produces a little bit of alcohol, and it creates these really fresh fruit flavors in the grapes. Uh, when 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 you keep grapes cold and not exposed to oxygen, they tend to really pre- it preserves the really fresh fruity flavors of, of the grapes um, rather than, you know, traditional winemaking. Okay. And you said typically for like immediate to drink, like young, younger and it's vintage. What are some cases where it's an older to earn aged wine that would be carbonic macerated? Uh, well, Marcel Lapierre, um, definitely his, his wines um, have a track record for aging. Is that an um, old vintage 2014? Is it right now? For Beaujolais, for Beaujolais, it's, I mean, not anymore. I mean, I mean, Beaujolais can age. You can drink wine from 1989 that are stunning. But um, I mean, yeah, usually you don't see Beaujolais um, unless you like you know where to look with like a ton of age on it. So that's kind of like usually you don't see wines from Beaujolais older than four years. I mean, like every day. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. Okay. Cool. I mean, Beaujolais. I mean, if it's made in a semi-carbonic maceration, um, where it's not a hundred percent sealed, it's exposed to a little more oxygen or whatever, winemaker just you know thinks is semi-carbonic maceration then those wines are a little more on the earthiness a little more traditional and and then there's people who make gamay like uh, jean-paul brun uh, i believe he, he makes his gamay in just a very traditional style you know fermenting and fermenting at normal temperatures and, and and open top containers and in barrels and things like that so and what what are your thoughts on like ice wine and like we'll try this effective wine um it's great. I mean, like Sauterne, you know, Sauterne is one of the great, great wines of the world. Mm-hmm. And then you have beautiful ice wines from Germany with Riesling that are absolutely stunning. Kartauserhof uh, makes nice wine. All, all, all the major producers have ice wines that are just that are fantastic. What about Canadian wines? Do you get into any of that? I, I don't have much. I mean, there's great potential in Canada from, you know, from reading and from learning that I understand, but uh, I've never really personally tasted many Canadian wines. Okay. Um, so I, I don't really have a true opinion on that. I grew up a little bit for four years in the Finger Lakes and 
my favorite wine type is a Riesling from the Finger Lakes just because I remember trying it as a kid and that's always stuck with me. What are your thoughts on Finger Lakes wines and what's the general consensus from people in the wine the industry? The general consensus is that Finger Lakes wine is delicious. Mm-hmm. It's a serious wine region. It's a cool climate that can grow great Riesling and Cabernet Franc, uh, I think, are the two most successful grape varieties up there. People, There's also people who make beautiful Pinot Noirs and some more interesting off-the-beaten-path uh, grape varieties as well up there, like Lamberger and um, Terrell Doggo, I think, and, and th- things like that. So um, Finger Lakes is a great wine region that, that produces beautiful wines. They're, they're great producers up there. There's Bloomer Creek, Element, um, it's on and on. In- I don't know. I always think Finger Lakes is their wine is so crisp. Sometimes I think maybe from the coolness, like mm-hmm. it's just like like their rieslings always to me are nice and like just like just they, crisp they produce, and nice. They produce a dry style of riesling in the Finger Lakes. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, typically the wines are produced are fermented dry in the Finger Lakes. They always have a very high acidity to them and, and a really kind of nice fruit profile. It is a New World wine, so they they, they typically have a really nice fruit profile to them as well. They're really easy drinking. I suppose Old World would have what type of profile? Uh, German Rieslings can show a little more of the, of the you know mineral side of things, a, a little more of the kind of hard-edged lemon and lime, uh, things like that. But there are producers like J.J. Prune that have wines that show like almost raspberry and, and beautiful golden apples. So, I mean, typicity is typicity in a region, but um, I guess now with modern winemaking, Okay. You can get whatever you want from wherever you want. Okay. Cool. So what you, I want to kind of get a little bit into online wine just because the reason I got into podcasting was this guy named Gary Vee, who you know really well. And he started out as an online wine seller with Wine Library TV on YouTube and whatnot. Like, how important was he to the wine industry? And, like, what are your thoughts on his impact? Gary Vaynerchuk's a really cool guy. Um, founded uh, the Wine Library. And... He kind of made wine, especially because he did his series, you know, he was on YouTube as mm-hmm. a YouTube personality. He really made wine accessible to a lot of people who probably otherwise would not have been drinking wine mm-hmm. uh, at all. And because he was very outspoken about it and made it uh, really digestible for people, uh, he really just did a lot to help educate, educate and further wine in this country. Then do you agree? I don't know. I don't know how much of you, that you watched of him, but did you ever agree with like his wine library stuff? Or well, I mean, I mean, uh, we we actually, I, I think, just from watching his things, I think that we have a very similar taste uh, mm. in wine. Um, but obviously, I'm a different person, so I, I don't agree with everything he says. Yeah, he's he's very hardline, hardline kind of guy. I think so. Yeah, I'm a little softer. Would you ever want to get into the the field of creating content about wine? Maybe I mean I guess I'm doing that right now, um, but that's not my primary goal. No, you know, I think you'd be good at it. I think you have maybe not even, like I think a podcast would be cool. I'd listen to it, but maybe like an Instagram. Because I I find I, maybe this exists and I just don't follow it. But I think it would be really cool to have a really accessible Instagram that highlights yeah. regions and stuff. Oh, there are there are tons of there's wine follow you can follow wine following on Instagram and, and things like that. There, there are tons of people on Instagram who do that really well um, there's definitely an instagram community of wine people um i don't really care that much to put myself in that kind of community uh I'm just not someone who really just really wants to have a presence on social media like social media like that this is not my vibe but is there an instagram that community that is 
wine interested cooks but just don't know anything about wine that we like that's what i'm looking <laughs> what? for no i mean i don't know maybe i think that would be cooks cool. who don't know anything about wine but yeah. you want to learn more about wine you can start your own instagram for that yeah, yeah. that'd be cool uh i know just <laughs> Um, so, how, what is your goal for the next ten years? Like, what, like I know you're a Somali now, Gabriel Cruiser, like very, very big deal uh, for anyone who doesn't know. It's a two Michelin star restaurant. If you don't know what Michelin stars are, they're like the epitome of what every chef in the industry wants. And Sam happens to be a Somali at this restaurant. Congratulations to you at getting it at such a young age. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure your career is going to skyrocket. I mean, you're already at what most people probably strive to be at in terms of getting to this level. Uh, what do you expect out of yourself in the next ten years, or what do you want to see? I don't know. Um, it's been a year so far since I've been at Gabriel Corther and I've been a Psalm there um, officially. Uh, I've been a Psalm, uh, a Psalm there since uh, the new year, pretty much just mm-hmm. before the new year, I believe. Uh, you know, I think it was. So. so it's been a really good experience there for the year I've been there. And I uh, hope, you know, can't wait to see what the next year brings. I plan to, I plan to be there for a little while longer. It's just, it's too good of a restaurant to leave, you know? Yeah. Every day is a different day, and I, I'm constantly learning. Every minute I'm there, I'm, I'm improving and learning something new. So it's really just a – you know, I, I like the joke. I call it Gabriel Corther's College of Hospitality and Culinary <laughs> Arts because it's, really like it's really like going to college there. It's a really fantastic environment with really kind and genuine people who, who push and who know how to push people to be the best that they can be and, and know how to teach people and just, you know, develop this really – really great cooks in front of the house from the house server so and is there do you ever want your own spot or like i guess what's yeah your so in, in 10 years i don't i don't know where i'm going to be in 10 years hopefully not in new york city probably <laughs> will still be here though um I, I really don't know right right now i'm just thinking like about getting through the summertime it's going to be a busy summer at the restaurant um it's be a very busy summer at the restaurant and so i'm just you know working through getting through the summertime figuring out how i can get, you know, just to the next level in the restaurant of capabilities, you know, and, and be ready as just a better sommelier for when it becomes the busy season uh, in the fall and the winter time, you know, and during the holidays. I just, that I'm preparing for that. That's really my main goal. In 10 years, maybe hopefully I'll have, you know, be a beverage director somewhere, you know, really own something. I'm mm-hmm. not, not own a business, but own, you know, or own a role, be a director, create a wine list, be consulting, you know, whatever, be have a, you know, making wine or something. Okay. Yeah. Just own, own really in 10 years, I really just want to own, have something that's my own in some, in some way. Is there, um, do you ever feel overwhelmed on how, like for me, like even the thought of getting into wine is like a little scary, not like, like death, like deathly afraid, but like, just like, wow, there's so much. Do you ever feel overwhelmed at like the amount of wine you still have to learn and know and drink and understand? I mean, overwhelms. I mean, overwhelm. Yeah, but in a positive way, it's exciting for me, you know. I don't feel bad that, you know, if I find out I don't know something, it, to me that's exciting because then it's just something I can learn. Yeah. Like, something I can improve on and just, you know, attacking it. So. Okay. Who are, uh, who are some smiles? Before, yeah. it's not scary to me. Like, you know, like the fact that I don't know something, it's not as scary. Okay. It's not, it doesn't make me nervous, you know. It's just... You're just you, you're excited there. because there's yeah. you're not you know you're never gonna find a stopping point yeah, yeah. where you're done learning exactly okay and who are, like, I guess getting to that, like who are some smiles who kind of you can relate to or resonate with or who you think you could like kind of almost become in the next 
few years. Like, who are some people you look up to being like, hey, I get where you're coming from? I, I think that the sommelier that I really uh, try to emulate uh, every day the most is uh, a woman named Pascaline Lapeltier. She's a master sommelier. She uh, is a managing partner, I believe, at Racine's in, uh, in, on Chamber Street in New York City. It's a, it's a fantastic wine bar with beautiful nat- selection of natural wines and classic wines. It's an amazing wine list with fantastic food. And she just exudes this vibe of confidence and she's so knowledgeable and very personable and, and her service is impeccable. I, I, I meet in her scenes a few times and she, she Pasqueline just provides amazing service to the guests. She's really, really relatable, relatable and she puts you at comfort and she knows how to provide hospitality and technically her service is perfect. Um, when it comes to pouring wine, decanting wine, just being at a table, she's always either bringing something to the table, whether she's bringing conversation or she's bringing your wine or food or she's leaving the table. She's always removing something that's, I noticed she's always removing something that's dirty or not being used from the table uh, if she can. So she's really just a, just a role model for me. She's someone who, who, who nails the technical aspects of service and she also nails the hospitality. Okay. And like, it must be important to not only know about the wine, but be able to sell it and be able to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Do you find often find yourself getting into conversations with people that aren't even like related to wine? Like, do you ever go down those rabbit holes with people? Yeah, well, that's well, that's part of being in a re- being in a restaurant, being a sommelier. You you don't only talk about wine with guests. You know, you ask them how their day is going. You know, you find out if they're going to see a show after dinner, and you know, maybe if you know a little bit about Broadway, which I think anyone who works in Midtown should know a decent bit about. Broadway and the plays that are on it because guests are always in that area doing that. But um, yeah, you talk to them about, you know, the things they're going to do that day or you talk to them about sports or the weather, or, you know, things like that. You know, usually if it's sunny out, I always tell guests are like, Oh, how are, how are you doing? You know, I go ask guests how they're doing and they ask me how I'm doing back. And I'm like, Oh, it's a great day. It was sunny out this afternoon. So I rode my bike to work. It was fantastic. And, and that usually gets a nice response from guests like, oh, it was so nice. I wish I were my bike to work or you know, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, like um, you need to be able to talk about other things besides just wine with guests so you can build a rapport with them and you can build trust. And so they can begin to like you and that way you can sell them, sell them better wine. I mean, you have such an important role in terms of restaurants because like you're kind of while well, people are waiting for their food and whatnot, you kind of set the tone whether it's going to be like a positive experience or you come off as snobby then people are like, wow, maybe they think the food is snobby and they don't even realize it's because they thought Somalia was, like, you know, like someone who was standoffish. Like, I just think Somalis have such a big role that people who aren't Somalis don't kind of understand. Yeah, front of house and service in, in general is really important to the guest's perception of food. You know, the, the food technically could be absolutely perfect and it can arrive in the perfect sequence, um, not too long, not too quick. But if the front of the house is rude and pretentious or messes up an allergy or something like that that can you know the guest experience can be completely ruined so it's very important uh, as a sommelier and as someone who works in the front of the house of the restaurant to understand that you're really the person who kind of influences how the guest feels about the restaurant uh, truly and so yeah there's a little bit of pressure in, in that regard okay uh really interested in like stuff i don't know in terms of like, what do you think is a country right now that's making really great wine that's really underrated or really underpriced? Uh, countries that are making good wine that are underpriced. Let's see. Uh, certain regions of France. 
yeah. or the Loire Valley. I mean, people people always think that for wine from France is going to be expensive and kind of on a soapbox, and that's just not the case. Um, there's California's there's producers in California that are just you know like uh, Brock Sellers and Packs and, and and producers like that who are really just producing beautiful wine that's very atypical for what is expected in California, and kind of changing that around. And uh, yeah, there's great there's great wine made everywhere in the world, Croatia and Bulgaria, Hungary, get wine great wine every, everywhere. Yeah, but, um, it's a good value too. But I know Gary V mentions Portugal a lot. Do you oh yeah, well, yeah. Portugal is just really the epitome of of you know QPR of you know of, of real great value. Why is that? The wines just people when they think of Portugal, they think of just port, and so the other wines are not really thought of ever. And they just produce incredible, incredible uh, wines with a great capacity to age. Some of the oldest wines I've ever had in my life are Portuguese wines, dry Portuguese wines that are just absolutely stunning. And most of them are rather inexpensive. You know, there's a few keynote producers like Louis Pato and his uh, daughter, Philippa Pato, who I've actually had lunch at a winery before, which is a fantastic experience. And, and she's doing really good things for the country. And just beautiful wines in Portugal that are, that are always a great value. That's cool. What are uh, what are some books you would recommend? I mean, I know we have the wine book from school, which I still intend on reading. Uh, I, I, I'm assuming you read that or at least read parts of it. I mean, yeah, it's a reference book, you know. You study from it. What um What are some? I mean, I know you have a certain book you keep recommending to me. If you want to talk about that, and then maybe some others that you've really enjoyed. Yeah, I, I think that everyone who has a uh, an interest in wine and, and wants to learn more about wine and is especially if they're struggling to understand wine and to make that connection with wine, to just understand why it's important. You should read, uh, it's written by an important wine importer, Kermit Lynch, uh, Adventures on the Wine Route. It chronicles his his journey through France uh, in the 80s and 90s when he was uh, starting to bring, uh, and I think 70s too, um, starting to bring kind of off the beaten path wine from France into the U.S. and talks about the winemakers he met and the dinners he's had with them and his experiences in the vineyards. And it really just puts a personal touch uh, on wine and it really connects the reader to the region. So now the regions are not just, you know, a Loire Valley, Chinon, Cabernet Franc from, um, you know, Charles Jugot. There's a story about how Kermit Lynch was in Chinon with Charles Jugot eating, eating dinner and, you know, tasting in his cold damp cellar and, spitting these incredible wines on his gravel floor. And, and so, so now there's a face and a story and an experience uh, alongside the region. And, and that's really why it's such a great book. And it'll really help. I think it really helps people under, not necessarily maybe learn more, learn more technical things about wine, but just have a connection to wine and understand wine and, and see what it's capable of, of doing for people's lives. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'll definitely have to pick that up and read it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my last questions is, uh, what like, is there a certain vintage you think that you end up being like, I mean, I know that there's so many different wine, grape varietals that have so many different vintages that are good. Is there a certain vintage where you just end up falling into like, oh, this Chardonnay was really good. And, oh, this reason was really great. And this Cabernet Sauvignon was also great in like 2008 or whatever it might be. Well, 2008's not like, 2008's a bad vintage. Um, yeah, that kind of. Uh, my, my boss uh, really enjoys 2008's actually. Um, and I, there's certain wines that are charming in 2008, I think. Yeah, but no. I mean, when it comes to vintage, vintage is important, but really, uh, you want to look more into producer. Great producers produce good wine, regardless of the vintage. Uh, 
typically when I when I refer to vintage, uh, it's for style of wine uh, more so than quality of wine. If you want a really big, rich, ripe, fruit-driven red burgundy, I might recommend 2005, 2009, 2010, or 2015. And if you want something a little more acidity, a little more spice and earth-driven, a, a little lighter uh, style of burgundy, then I might recommend 2006. Uh, and I might recommend 2008 or 2014. So uh, that, that's that's how I, I view vintage. Um, you know, but if you want to get inter- nerdy about vintages, I mean, 2005 is good everywhere in Europe. I mean, the wines are going to age for a very, very long time. They're, they're massive, massive wines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, well, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, the question I end with every podcast is something I'll ask you is, what does it mean for you now that you've been on the show to be a part of Line Cook Nation, the group of chefs and cooks and sommeliers now and everyone else who in the industry want to be more informed? Um, being a part of this podcast, uh, both of us are, are, are in our early 20s at a really young age, and we're just the next generation of professionals in this industry. And to be creating this dialogue, and we were, to be creating this dialogue is, is really, really healthy uh, for, the, for the industry to be able to talk just openly and very easily uh, mm-hmm. to connect with other people who work in the industry and hear their stories is very, very important. Uh, you know, you used to have to know people or hear a story from someone else, you know, but now with the internet, I mean, podcasts, everything is totally different. You can ever information just at your fingertips. Yeah. If you want to learn about a, a new cuisine or a new wine region or whatever, you can just click the clock on Google and, and, you know, you can, you can learn about something new. I mean, you, there's a difference between actually being there and tasting and experiencing the culture in real life versus on the, on the internet and, and just studying, but, um, uh, it really provides, it's a great tool and yeah. So I think it's, that that's, what's important about what we're doing. Awesome. Great. Well, like I said, thank you for coming on. I mean, I was really excited about this podcast because I haven't had a wine focused podcast yet and you know, you're always welcome back on the show and I hope we, you know, down the road get more podcast episodes going because there's a lot more I'd love to talk about in terms of wine, especially as I get more into it. So. Thank you. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that'd be fun. Lots, lots of cool, lots of cool podcasts we could do. We could yeah. Do a blind tasting podcast or something like that. That'd That's be, a that'd good be idea. Fun. Yeah. yeah, but thanks for having me on the show. It was really, really good talk. Right. Thank you, Sam. Absolutely. And there you have it. The interview with Sam Backrack on the Length of Thoughts podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Check out LionCookThoughts.com for your official Lion Cook Nation merch, and thank you so much for listening to this episode.